The reading is taken from John, chapter 21, and beginning at verse 1. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there, with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anita. It's slightly ironic that I should have been given by the vicar to preach on a passage about fishing. Now, if you're a regular at St. Andrew's, you'll be well aware that Andrew is a keen and experienced fisherman. I, on the other hand, have never so much as held a fishing rod. I see, see the sort of the shame. But I will tell you about a doctor who was a keen fisherman. This rural doctor was famous in the area for always catching large fish. One day, while he was on one of his frequent fishing trips, he got a call that a woman was um, at a neighboring farm was, was giving birth. He rushed to her aid and delivered a healthy baby boy. The farmer had nothing to weigh the baby with, so the doctor used his fishing scales. According to the scales, the baby weighed 32 pounds. Now, while today's reading might in some ways 
seem like a bit of a tall story of the type that fishermen are sometimes inclined to tell, I'd actually suggest that there is something in it, well, there's plenty in it, in fact, to suggest that it actually happened. To me, there is a ring of veracity about it, not least in the details that we're provided with. We're told about the individuals present, and what we see in the passage of their behavior fits with what we know of their characters from before. We're told about details such as clothing, the distance the boat was from the shore, the exact number of fish caught, and so on. But not only is it, I believe, historically true, but there are also deep spiritual truths within it. There are three stages to this story. There's a frustrating night. There's a miraculous catch and a lakeside breakfast. Played out in the lives of Jesus' dispersed disciples, I think each of these three stages represents a situation in our lives. The first stage is our situation without the risen Christ. And this contrast, this, this situation contrasts with the second and third stages once the risen Christ arrives on the scene. This sermon then is in three sections, and I have correspondingly titled them Failure, Fruitfulness, and Fellowship. Failure, Fruitfulness, and Fellowship. A fishing sermon with Fs all over it. Let's pray for God's help as we consider his word together. Dear Lord, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you uh, for the wonderful uh, good news of the resurrection. I pray that as we look at your words together, that we would hear the risen Christ speaking to each one of us and that we would be transformed. Amen. Firstly, failure. This episode starts shortly after the momentous events of Holy Week, with seven of Jesus' disciples returning to their former occupation. They were fishermen. Jesus had previously called them away from their nets to catch men, but now they were back fishing. Quite why this was, we don't know. They had been told that they would meet the risen Christ in Galilee, and perhaps they were waiting. Perhaps whilst they were waiting, they decided to do something useful. Maybe they needed to provide for their families. Irrespective of the reason, this particular nighttime fishing trip was to be an exercise in futility. I gather that futile fishing trips are not a completely alien experience to fishermen. Former U.S. President Calvin Coolidge was an ardent fisherman, and fishing in the River Brule was one of his favorite ways of relaxing from his presidential duties. Returning from one of these excursions to Washington, the president was asked if he'd had any luck. Well, replied the president, I estimate that there are 45,000 fish in the River Brule, and although I haven't caught them all yet, I've intimidated them. I'm not sure that this motley crew of seven had even intimidated the fish. Despite their best efforts and teamwork, and they were experienced fishermen, of course, they had no fruits to show for their labor. And labor they had. Peter had been working hard enough in the cool of the dawn to have needed to, strip, to, to have stripped off his outer garment. They'd been working hard. Their failure during that night symbolizes the human condition. We all experience limitations. Even the geniuses amongst you sometimes fail to work things out. We all fail to achieve the targets that we set ourselves. How are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? 
Moral failure is a universal occurrence, and we're all subject to illness and ultimately to death. Reliant on our own resources, trusting in ourselves, we all ultimately fail. Even our greatest human achievements won't last. All humans are, as the psalmist puts it, like grass, flourishing like a flower of the field until the wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. The bad night fishing sums up our human condition. The second part of our story from verse 4 signals a dramatic change in fortune. As the darkness of night turns into a brand new day, so the disciples' experience is transformed. The unfruitfulness of a night laboring under their own steam is spectacularly changed when the risen Christ appears on the sea. Failure is changed into fruitfulness. Fruitfulness, which is our second heading. Not recognized at first, Jesus, standing on the shore, calls out to the men bobbing in their fishing boat about 100 yards away. The the speech is colloquial, and it goes something like this. Hey, lads, haven't caught any fish, have you? Try there on the right side of you, and you will catch some. Experienced fishermen are not noted for their ready appreciation of the advice of strangers. But there is something in Jesus' tone which inspires confidence. And just as well they obeyed, they end up with the catch of their lives. To the disciples who have spent three years with Jesus, such a result betrays the presence of Jesus himself. Things like this only happen when Jesus is involved. They would certainly have recalled a very similar episode three years earlier, again in Peter's boat, when Jesus supplied them with a miraculous catch. This is recorded in Luke 5. Perhaps ringing in their ears were words, the words of Jesus that we read last week in our evening service. Without me, you can do nothing. The Lord Jesus is the source of all genuine fruitfulness, all true productivity, whether in our moral efforts, in our day-to-day work, or our evangelistic endeavors. And whilst we should, like those fishermen, use all of our resources, use the resources available to us, we need to put them under Jesus's command. Throw your net on the right side of the boat, said Jesus. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. The psalmist tells us, unless the Lord builds the house, its its builders labor in vain. Real fruitfulness is only possible through reliance on Jesus and obedience to his words. Obedience to the risen Lord transforms failure into fruitfulness and transposes our experience from the mundane to the amazing, the fullness of life that Jesus promises. But what if those fishermen had ignored him? What if they thought, who is this guy anyway, comfortably standing on the shore? What does he know about fishing? Well, we're all inclined to want to do it my way, to take a page out of Frank Sinatra's songbook. We're rather like willful toddlers much of the time. Perhaps you've had experience looking after one. Toddlers can do certain things on their own, but for them, other things are just impossible. They can't possibly get up into their high chair on their own without crashing to the ground, or at least that was the experience with our toddlers. Maybe your toddlers are different. But they have to submit to your help for certain things they can't do on their own. You might admire their independent spirit and their sense of adventure, 
but some things you just cannot do on your own. Jesus is the one who transforms failure into fruitfulness. He is the one who transforms disease into health and even death into life. Jesus' resurrection was the ultimate and definitive demonstration of his power to transform. Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection wasn't simply the result of the wishful thinking of his disciples. According to the New Testament accounts, there were multiple eyewitnesses to the resurrection in a variety of times and places. This rules out hallucination. The claim that Jesus' resurrection the claim of Jesus' resurrection was never refuted by the authorities by a production of his dead body, and Jesus had certainly been properly killed. The stakes were too high to have botched his execution. And besides, he was killed by professionals whose livelihood and even lives depended on them doing their job properly. The evidence for the resurrection, though, that I find most convincing is the complete transformation that occurred in Jesus' disciples. They changed from a band of scared, confused, and disillusioned followers following his death to a dynamic group of bold evangelists prepared to die for the message that they proclaimed, as many of them went on to do, of course. There is no other convincing explanation for the transformation that they underwent. There is no other convincing explanation for the transformation that millions of followers of Christ have since experienced. Again, many of them prepared to die for their belief in the risen Christ. Of course, it's not easy to believe that Jesus defeated death and rose from the dead. But it's not a question of screwing up your brain as tight as you can and making yourself believe something to be true that you know to be false. A quote from Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Now, I'll give you something to believe, said the White Queen. I'm just 101 five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you? The Queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There is no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. The disciples didn't have to believe six impossible things before breakfast. But they did, before they had their barbecued fish breakfast, have to put their trust in Jesus and do as he told them. Faith is less about difficult abstract belief and more about personal trust and obedience. Those disciples in the boat took a while to realize who the stranger was, but the proof was in the pudding. They probably didn't feel much like doing as they were told, but they did it all the same. They put their trust in him, and the results converted them. It is Jesus. It is the Lord. Faith is about taking a risk and stepping out. Faith in Jesus is about practical obedience. And if you rely on Jesus, God will not let you down. As the psalmist invites us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And tasting and seeing brings us to our third and final heading, fellowship. Briefly, we will consider how the transformation 
that the risen Christ brings is not simply a transformation of externals. He doesn't simply bring productivity and fruitfulness to us, but the transformation he brings is also a transformation of the inner life. Fellowship. Peter, as impetuous as ever, puts on his outer garment, the appropriate attire for greeting someone, and launches himself into the lake and swims the 100 yards to the shore to greet his Lord. As the futility and failure of the night is transformed into fruitfulness, so the sadness of separation is transformed into the joy of reunion. After a long night on the lake, Jesus provides just what the disciples need, breakfast and the warmth of the fire whilst they eat together and dry off. Eating together is an expression of fellowship, of closeness and unity. Despite the recent failure of his disciples to stick by him when he was in trouble, and even denying knowledge of him, they are forgiven by Jesus. They are reconciled to and at peace with their Lord. Jesus had provided the food, and he acts as the host of this breakfast party. He's the head of the household, providing hospitality to his honored guests. This lakeside breakfast would have been reminiscent of a number of key episodes over the previous three years spent with Jesus. But significantly, it would have reminded them of that special meal that they had celebrated not long before in the upper room. Here, bread and wine were shared and identified to represent the body and blood of Jesus himself. The greatest need that we have is forgiveness of our sins and new life reconciled to God. These can be ours because of Jesus' death and resurrection. All the disciples, from the least to the greatest, were invited to the fellowship meal with Jesus, and all are invited today. From the spiritually insightful, like John, to public failures, like Peter, doubters, like Thomas, and even a couple of anonymous disciples, unnamed and unimportant in the eyes of the world. All are welcome. Personality, prominence, or past performance are irrelevant when it comes to being invited to have fellowship with Jesus. What qualifies us is not what we have done, but what he has done. What qualifies us is not what we have done, but what he has done. We simply need to answer his call, take what he provides, and responds to his invitation to eat with him. In conclusion, then, we see from this wonderful episode that the risen Christ brings about transformation. He transforms failure to fruitfulness of life and fellowship with God. If we will submit to Jesus as our Lord, reliant on him and not ourselves, the one who has defeated death and will provide for all our needs, both now and eternally, the risen Jesus transforms lives. I'm now going to close with a short poem that illustrates, well, I think, the transformation that is brought about by the risen Jesus. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth the while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I offered, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A pound, a pound. Now two, only two, two pounds. Who'll make it three? Going for three, sang the auctioneer, going for three. But no, from the back of the room, 
an old gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tuning up all the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as an angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And held it up with the bow. A thousand pounds. And who'll make it two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The people cheered, and some of them cried. We do not understand what changed its worth, a man replied, the touch of the master's hand. Many a man with life out of tune and battered and torn with sin is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going, and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand.